Welcome back to the Medical Republic. In all of the madness of this year, it's nice to take some time to reflect on all the policy and advocacy going on behind the scenes. Not only for coping with this pandemic, but looking to improve GP remuneration, the training conditions for junior doctors, and looking to solutions in aged care. I'm Francine Crimmins, and this episode I'll be joined by Dr Tony Bartoni, who until very recently was president of the AMA. In his two-year term, which was originally extended two months because of the COVID-19 pandemic, has finally come to a close. But he joins us on this episode to talk about his time in the position and the tragic summer bushfires, and then the pandemic, which have become somewhat defining features of the AMA's work in the last seven months. Tony, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Francine. My pleasure. And so everyone keeps talking about this new normal since the start of COVID. I mean, you were so busy since the start of the pandemic as AMA president and now president no longer. But what does your new normal look like, so to speak, now? Uh, My new normal is uh, evolving all the time, you might say. It uh, changes from day to day. Clearly, uh, obviously trying to transition back into full-time general practice at a time when um, Melbourne in particular is in co- uh, stage four lockdown still and uh, still uh, most uh, well, many of my patients are in that sort of vulnerable age group, uh, very you know, elderly and uh, chronic and complex to, uh, comorbidities and they're the ones that are particularly very fearful and very uh, concerned about moving out and about and notwithstanding all the, the messages that um, we hear and we uh, try to communicate to our to our patients about uh, ensuring that they maintain their uh, regular connection and in regular uh, care during these times, uh, they still continue to, uh, I suppose, defer or you know wait or or put off the usual uh, um, usual inter intercurrent uh, uh, care, and so that means that we have to be more diligent and more uh, focused on trying to be proactive in in ensuring that their uh, continuity of care. Um, and indeed, um, they're you know trying to cope with a new telehealth um, norm, which is the majority, which can be on some days the majority of your work rather than a complement to your work, uh, is uh, indeed a challenge. And uh, and just redressing that uh, that change in particular, but in 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 another form or shape or, or whatever, it's looking ahead at. Uh, at tra- trying to transition um, general practice and your your general practice into the into the future into what um, an evolving uh, care might look like and clearly what we did see uh, if I put my my old hat on uh, back on for a moment is that uh, the importance of general practice in terms of trying to join up the dots between federal and state between you know the the different parts of the health system acute chronic the you know tertiary hospital uh, that in it whichever way whichever way you want to look at it general practice is obviously that glue that holds everything together and I think many of our uh, state and federal leaders have realised the importance of general practice uh, even more so during the COVID pandemic uh, unfortunately um, uh, apart from short term um, you know uh, pats on the back and uh, and praises there hasn't been the appreciation of indeed the, the need and the amount of reform that's required to ensure the general practice truly is uh, uh, cemented in that uh, position um, of that cornerstone of, of primary care, that the, the underpinning part of the entire health system. And, and whether it be uh, improvement in digital 
communication between um, different parts of the of the system. And I mean, you know, how many times do we have to say, you know, when are we going to be able to ditch our fax machine? Uh, and indeed, if we even look at one of the basic, simple things that we might take for granted, but in terms of during um, even only till recently, I didn't have visibility of which patients were uh, which patients of our clinic were being um, diagnosed as being COVID positive by um, the external testing facilities because we weren't being notified by the, the government facility. So clearly we were still at a considerable disadvantage in terms of the, uh, the, the obvious benefits that we could bring to the table when we weren't even part of the, uh, the, you know, the solution uh, from the point of view of, our, of the various uh, masters. So that was a complicated and long answer to saying that there are so many moving parts to this jigsaw. Uh, it's a daily, ch daily um, you know, va variation in terms of numbers of what, what are being reported, the aged care uh, situation, which is clearly another part of the, the ongoing puzzle. So it's been a, it's been a really um, challenging environment in which back to transition back to general uh, full-time general practice. Yeah, and I would imagine that that is also a bit of a bittersweet adjustment for anyone who has to first transition out of the role of AMA president, but you did so as we were talking about during a pandemic. Did you have any mixed feelings about the transition given the health crisis that was unfolding at the time and all the demands that went with that? I was in the position of being AMA president during one of the largest health crises that we've had to deal as a nation for over a hundred years. That can, with that comes responsibilities, but comes also with that comes also the opportunity to really try and uh, assist in in, in galvanising the efforts of a nation of. Uh, both of health resources in total, be they medical practitioners or, or the wider health system, and trying to assist government in terms of, uh, through advocacy, in terms of trying to get the necessary uh, processes and procedures in place. Now, clearly, we had a very, very large role to play, and I reflect back on that, and the, the opportunity that I had in terms of that is something that obviously I will uh, look back on uh, with... Um, a certain degree of, uh, shall I say, um, re reflection in terms of could I have done anything more? Could I have done anything better? Uh, I feel that we were able to get a lot achieved uh, using our uh, the association's um, channels in terms of imp implementing or imparting on government the, ne the need for the various consistent, right from the beginning, you know, one of the first things we said was there was a total uh, disconcordance of messaging from different parts of the of the federation, and we needed consistent messaging. We implored the, the having a, a very strong communications channel, and indeed the health department then eventually uh, did uh, explore significant um, communication arms. The, you know, the, the role in the COVID Safe app, the role in trying to ensure that we had um, the you know the appropriate PPE shortages communicated loud and clear, uh, the, the ongoing dialogue between the parts of the health department. And of course, can, can we ever forget the rapidity and the, and the, and the, and the indeed the intent of, uh, of how quickly uh, the MBS telehealth item numbers came into being? That was all part of the advocacy that was built up on many years worth of advocacy. And I indeed was the, uh, fortunate enough to be in that position at that time. Yes, it was frenetic. Yes, it was full on. 
of course, then you fast forward right to the end and having to um, be, you know, um, I had the opportunity to stay on for uh, an additional period of time, which was uh, thought to be prudent, given that uh, our constitution hadn't in, even encountered the, the, the need to uh, change uh, during a pandemic, the way it elected a new president, and we have a fixed-term role for our president, um, and clearly we, I need, I, I, that transition was going to have to occur. Uh, we, as I said, I've got an extra uh, two months, and that was um, especially important during the uh, the flare-up that was Victoria. But to step down during a health crisis is always, um, uh, as you correctly point out does have mixed feelings because you feel like you are leaving a, a problem um, and when it needs its most attention. Of course, the, the AMA is blessed with a, many, many people that can carry the baton. And, uh, and Professor Omar Khurshid uh, was uh, elected by uh, my fellow co colleagues at the um, national conference and um, is, is continuing on the, the fight and the advocacy in that role. Yeah. You know, my patients do say to me, uh, Doctor, why did you step down? Why didn't you stay on? Now you you explain to them that it was that it's not a, a position that you you can keep, and that you are there by the uh, the the will of your colleagues for as long as the constitution allows, and and clearly we had to move on. And so they are they are of because of that they are you know they're surprised to see me step down during a health crisis, but then understand. We've talked a lot about COVID to start with, and I know it seems hard to think about anything else at the moment. And the majority of your presidency, though, did happen in non-COVID times. And I know that it's probably hard to think back to those times. It's like looking through muddy water now. Um, but what do you see as some of the biggest achievements during your whole term as AMA president? Well, just to, uh, before we move on to that, I mean, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be president of our association, the AMA, for 26 months. And uh, essentially, uh, seven of those months were spent either, uh, either dealing with the bushfire crisis, the uh, air quality and smoke situation, or then COVID. So you could say that seven out of 26, nearly a quarter of that time, was spent on uh, factors which did, took me away from the, re the reasons that I was elected in the first place. And it was always about ensuring that general practice had the appropriate bandwidth and, uh, and recognition by all parts of the health system, um, all parts of the, the governments, both state and federal, uh, in terms of the appropriate funding and the appropriate um, resourcing of, the, of, of uh, our, our general practice uh, framework to ensure that it really had the, the, the bandwidth to, do, to proceed accordingly. And you know, if I if I look at any of the highlights or indeed the opportunities to assert that, I felt that even just looking back to the 2019 budget, where we saw the large, you know, significant Im improvement in the uh, health budget, was largely in excess of one billion dollars, 1.1 billion dollars being um, uh, advocated for general practice, was a considerable uh, highlight. Of course. Part of that is the $448 million, which was earmarked for voluntary patient enrolment or nomination, as we were referring to it. And unfortunately, that was due to, you know, that was earmarked to begin in 1st July and it has been deferred because of COVID. And I suppose so that's both a highlight and an, indeed a disappointment that that's clearly still on the table and with no clear uh, pathway 
to win and um, how it looks like, given that telehealth is is obviously was one of the key components of that, but clearly now also on the table separately. I suppose the other third thing is that there was an, uh, through the MBS review at the same time, there was an appreciation which led to the um, to the funding for voluntary patient enrolment um, in that um, age group. The, the recognition that we as GPs spend an enormous amount of our time in non-face-to-face care you know, um, or coordination of our patients. And that is um, because of an MBS system that really relies on a uh, patient-facing time was really completely now out of date with the, uh, the care that's required. And I think that conversation has, has at least, you know, the pennies dropped that there is a significant amount of time that we spend and depending on your patient profile can be as much as 30% or more of your time is in coordination and non-face-to-face care. And until we recognise that, we're considerably still going to not really fully appropriately fund general practice in the correct method, I believe, going forward. But apart from that, I mean, the other things to drop out of um, at the same time was also understanding that you know there needs to be a recognition that um, even though general practice is funded by federal uh, the federal government, clearly a lot of the activity of fed, of general practice benefits other people outside of federal government. And so you know in particular, I'm referring to state governments. So if we're keeping patients out of hospital for longer or preventing their first presentation to hospital, The benefactor there is obviously state uh, governments, but state governments uh, really do not, in a a, a general sense, contribute anywhere to the funding of general practice. So we need to have those, understand those drivers and those, uh, you know, impediments to the appropriate funding and the appropriate, uh, I suppose, coordination of uh, a patient um, needs and a patient's movements through the health system. And until we get that coordination and that collaboration fully uh, explored, uh, refined, and indeed improved upon by all the other enablers, we're still going to be dealing with a lot of the other impediments that we've had to deal with now. And that, I suppose, led to, in part, to the Primary Healthcare Reform Group, which was supposed to wrap up its uh, deliberations by now, and which I'm a member of, and um, I won't spend too much time talking about you know the deliberations of that group, uh, but clearly the the premise behind it was exactly that: how can we reform? How can we improve in terms of the primary care outcomes and um, and the strategy involved? And and we had some really you know we've had you know some really good discussions, some really good opportunities for uh, both col- um, uh, uh, feedback and consultation. But then COVID got in the way um, and delayed um, uh, that discussion. So what, what you know, the importance of ensuring that um, the focus and the advocacy on aged care remains one of the other significant parts of um, you know the reflections that I was I, I looked during my time as president. Clearly, I was able to present on two two occasions directly to the Royal Commission, and that was um, you know trying to highlight the the parlor state of aged care. Um, and then in, in further written submissions, and then in a combined advocacy campaign with the ANMF, the, um, the Nurses and Midwives Federation, in trying to highlight the, the significant issues, the significant structural in- issues 
befront, uh, be uh, confronting uh, aged care in this country and then really trying to highlight the need for further reform and, in, and funding um, and workforce reform. I mean, I feel that many people don't realise that the, the significant shortage of trained workforce uh, options in this country, notwithstanding that we can talk about the decisions about replacing nursing, uh, nurse trained nurses in aged care with uh, personal care attendants, and the and that that transition between the two over the last uh, many many years. But even if we were to try to redress that, um, there still isn't the availability in terms of a trained workforce option to go and recruit. And we've got a a, re a structural reform of um, having to to retrain um, a group of Australians, a significant large group of Australians, in order to try and deal with the needs and complexity of that. So still uh, lots of work in that area. And clearly, you know, we know that, um, unfortunately, um, it's, COVID has really shown up the, um, the, you know, in, in a very tragic way the the structural issues underpinning aged care in this in this uh, country, uh, but unfortunately, this uh, the at least having shone the light through the commission um, uh, in terms of the, the both our advocacy there and the presentations there has been an opportunity to try and get some redress for that sector, and hopefully that can continue on. There's so much more that needs to be done, and await uh, the commission's findings when it hands down next year there were many other areas which we um you know clearly uh, you know look back on um during uh, the time but i think the one thing that i'll really um cherish um forever and a day is the opportunity to work with so many strong dedicated general practice leaders in this country to try and bring together the advocacy and no more no more can that be exampled than in the the last few months of my presidency when having the opportunity to work with the late uh, uh, Harry Nespolon and also with Ewan McPhee in terms of ensuring that we had a framework in which to put to government um, um, about a, a model or a process that could all look at um, giving some um, some clarity about ongoing telehealth as well as um, using the um, the nomination of voluntary patient enrolment framework to try and give uh, ensure that there was further you know um, further funding reform to general practice working with those two particular uh, leaders as well as uh, 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 people such as Dr. Steve Hambleton, Wally Jamal, uh, John Hall. There are too many to list here, but using all those um, really strong, dedicated GPs was a reflection of uh, exactly, you know, how privileged I was to being a GP president in an association which across all of the profession but um, being able to work with those people at the time and, and trying to do um, what I could uh, in terms of leaving my mark on uh, general practice reform during that time. I was going to ask you about that collaboration and more specifically what you think the message is that the AMA offers GPs these days, given how involved they are with the RACGP and ACRIM and the RDAA, who are also running hard themselves at being advocacy groups, which traditionally maybe the AMA did more as a singular organisation. 
So what do you see as the role of the AMA now as representing GPs? So we often, um, as an association, often got uh, um, labelled as being um, uh, specialist-centric and not really uh, there for the GP or being focused more on one or the other or not truly representing general practice uh, we're there for the entire medical profession because we think a strong medical profession underpins a strong health system and general practice is an important, uh, an extremely important part of that health system and indeed the cornerstone of primary care. And more and more we're going to see, if you look at the, you know, if you look at our position statement and, and what we launched in the last few days of, uh, of the time as president, we, you know, our framework for general practice going forward, you know, a ten-year vision, you might say, it clearly points out the enormous in, uh, additional options that are, are, could be available if um, a government really did take on the mantle of, gen, you know, reform of our health system and put general practice, primary care, front and centre uh, of that reform. Back to your original question. And that is, we, we've always strongly advocated in that, notwithstanding that, I feel we did our best work in terms of uh, leading that change when we were able to co- collaborate and work as a, a, a much wider um, outfit using the, the opportunities that led, were, were delivered by working with all the other organisations. I do believe that UGPA or some version of that is an important part of that ongoing reform um, uh, process and the and being able to deliver that and ensuring that governments understand it is going to be a, a key component, I believe, of, of the future um, in that respect. Uh, governments like to divide and conquer. Uh, you know, it's, it's always been a modus operandi, but united and and considered and collective advocacy will always impart the strongest bang for your buck. And I feel, especially as we look to the future, where we have significant increase in government debt, and obviously in the years ahead where we're going to have to look at dealing with how, as a nation, we deal with that debt, clearly health funding has got to be seriously defended and in particular when you've got a tight health budget ensuring that you have the appropriate savings and elimination of wastage in the um, uh, health uh, budget to ensure that every health dollar is spent wisely and and appropriately and clearly general practice cannot be um, the the line entry item that continually gets um, cut back or overlooked when it comes to um, uh, future health uh, expenditure. And as you know, Tony, one thing that's definitely been prominent in the last two years is that GPs are becoming increasingly aware of the PSR, the Professional Services Review, and some who have been investigated by the Professional Services Review sometimes feel like they have nowhere to turn or they feel guilty by investigation. Do you think that there should be a body like the AMA to defend doctors accused of potentially rorting Medicare? As currently, there just seems to be nowhere that they can go. And from my understanding, the AMA is somewhat involved with the PSR committee selection, so they can't play both sides of both advocating for doctors and also being a part of the PSR in that way. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. 
Look, the, the whole question of PSR and the, and the role of the AMA is a very long and, and detailed one. Understand that basically the, the, whole, uh, the, the whole modus operandi behind the PSR came in when in a, many, many uh, governments ago, um, the health minister of the day was looking at a redress for compliance um, for, uh, and morting in uh, the medical profession and was put, looking at much more onerous and much more um, draconian measures. And it was actually the AMA intervention which led to an, uh, an independent body such as the PSR being formed up. And that's why the AMA has a very strong um, role in terms of ensuring that the, pro, the robustness and the, and the resilience of a PSR selection is continued today. So that's where the role of the AMA is to ensure that we have member, you know, other colleagues of the profession making independent assessments of what is or isn't uh, deemed to be um, uh, uh, inappropriate practice rather than non medical government bureaucrats trying to make that decision. And so that still remains the premise of the PSR and the reason why the AMA has such a, it, you know, maintains, you know, clings to the importance of its selection process. And indeed, one of my um, particular uh, um, uh, efforts during the time was to ensure that there was as even more robustness and clarity and transparency along a, a, in the process of selection of any of those advisors and indeed that there were numerous conversations with the di director, uh, Professor Kinnivan, uh during that time in her department and that it didn't become a tick-the-box exercise. So, And this continues to be a really important part of the role that the AMA has and indeed um, going forward. So there, you're right, we can't play both sides, but we can ensure that there, you know, with an oversight to the selection and transparency of the process and indeed make sure and try to, and, and try to make uh, clear to the profession that that's a very, the importance of having that robustness in that, um, in that process. We, we do need to understand the reasons behind why the PSR came into being and we do need to understand why it's important to have a, a process to oversee the compliance in our, well, not the compliance, but the, you know, anyone that is particularly guilty of inappropriate practice uh, being uh, given the affordable, afforded the opportunity to defend themselves. And I suppose that's what we need to really uh, continue the work on. And that opportunity that there's still many parts to that. And indeed, the, you know, ensuring that there is um, the appropriate governance, the appropriate due process and equity and fairness in that process remains the the other items on the table which we weren't able to complete during my time but indeed which will be uh, taken up by the association and indeed is continued by the association i suppose as soon as covid's off the table and everybody can deal with their day job again and you've just pointed out there what happens at the final stages if someone does go through the PSR process. But on the other hand, do you see maybe a future where there is more reform on the MBS side of how doctors are able to bill specifically GPs 
fee-for-service, for example, uh, so that they aren't, as it seems to be now, the most frequent practitioners that are coming under PSR investigations? I've, look, I, clearly the MBS review was touted as many things and promised many things, but has been extremely disappointing in the way it, it, in what it's delivered so far for a number of reasons, and you know the time won't permit to to detail them. But clearly, um, it, we always said that the MBS review was an important, necessary next step of bringing an old, um, you know, a, a schedule up to date into the twenty first century but it couldn't be used as a savings opportunity. And unfortunately, there hasn't been any, uh, a lot of red tape, a lot of uh, paperwork, a lot of poor timeframes for, uh, um, you know, uh, consultation have been underpinning many of the, uh, the, the, the decisions that have been made by the MBS review. But to the other part of your care, uh, premise of your question, and that is that, fee-for-service is an important part of um, general practice, but clearly, for the many reasons which I think I've already touched upon, cannot be the only sole way uh, you fund general practice going forward. And there are many, many stakeholders with many, many reasons to fund general practice um, activity, um, and not all of them are indeed in face-to-face care. And we've got to be very cognizant of that and that is a really, and once we understand that, we'll get a fully uh, and appropriately funded general practice. And so, and the MBS does need to reform, but clearly can't be used as a sole way of funding general practice into the future. And the final question, Tony, is what are your plans now? I bet that you're not being bothered by journalists like me so much in your week. And uh, what are you up to post presidency? It might not surprise you, Francine, that uh, you just can't simply walk away from such a role um, overnight. Uh, many, many patients of mine have uh, have put up with my various AMA hats for uh, up almost eight years now in various different roles and have been very, very uh, um, uh, dedicated in remaining uh, uh, part of uh, the uh, the patient cohort that I take, uh, look after and ta- take uh, pride in uh, being part of their care uh, options. But if we look further to that, when you see the things that you were involved in as president, and one of them in particular is aged care, I can't walk away from the, what is going on in aged care at the moment. I can't walk away unless, you know, and seeing a, a system that is broken that needs to be coordinated, especially during um, uh, uh, such a, a crisis here in Melbourne. Uh, there, we still have a number of uh, facilities with uh, with significant outbreaks in those facilities. We still have patients uh, um, or residents um, in those uh, facilities that uh, were former patients that we still look after. Um, in, and uh, we caring for those residents is one thing, but care, needing to improve the system um, while you care for those residents is an important part of that ongoing challenge. And so I remain on a number of uh, different uh, committees and uh, and uh, informal task forces that are looking at ways in which GPs can be empowered and um, assisted in dealing with um, the various challenges that are present in aged care, especially during a, a COVID lockdown where uh, GPs are not encouraged to visit 
those facilities. They're where the GPs are in, are, are asked to uh, to dedicate themselves to telehealth primarily as their sole way of dealing of communicating with those residents um, and working with the staff um, those staff members at those facilities and in dealing with um, facilities that are uh, do have. COVID-19 outbreak. So uh, those um, external structural issues still form a significant part of my, um, you know, daily, um, you know, cognition and and output um, in terms of uh, what can we do better and where can I lend um, some support, some some assistance, some uh, uh, intellectual uh, process to um, trying to meet those challenges which continue to be present every day. So, Yes, trying to reacquaint myself with my patients, my, um, my and the and the practices that I've, I've that I've sort of uh, put um, on a bit of a hold for uh, the last eight years or so is a significant part of what I'm doing at the moment. But there are ongoing uh, other issues that uh, still require um, attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Tony Bartoni, for talking to me. My pleasure and you have a great day and uh, stay safe.